Are you all settled in then? You're in your spots and comfortable. I think I'm going to use this talk to help you in the ongoing process that you're already having of figuring out what just happened. (laughs) What just happened and what does it mean and how did I do? (laughs) So this is a natural and organic thing to be happening at the last full day of a retreat. The inner question, and I won't even get to the, the one of what will I say when I go home. Uh-huh. When your friends and your colleagues and family ask you, how was it? So you're already thinking about those kinds of things, so I'm going to see if I can uh, help you. Because there's a certain kind of way in which we can take the experience of these kinds of intensive retreats and really uh, do a job on ourselves based on what our experience was. And that's unnecessary dukkha. That's unnecessary suffering. Maybe inevitable, but unnecessary. (laughs) One of those things, you know. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, the structure of the Buddha's teachings as a whole. And then uh, we'll talk about uh, some other things. How many of you are familiar with the teachings of the Four Noble Truth and the Eightfold Path? Okay, so maybe 40%. So for the rest of you then, you've had the interesting experience of winding up at a Buddhist retreat center, doing intensive concentration practice and having no idea (laughs) what's going on here or why they're having you do such things and how it ties back into anything else whatsoever. So you're either really brave or deluded, or maybe some combo of both, but you had the karma to get here, which is wonderful. So the Buddha was an amazing human being with an amazingly powerful mind, and he had the capacity through the observation of his own personal immediate experience, the same sense doors that you do have, seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and then everything that goes on at what is called the mind door, thoughts, emotions, memories, fantasies, plans, judgments, intentions, all the rest of that. He had the same exact setup that we have the same exact setup, but he developed 
<clears throat> an extraordinary capacity to observe in an immediate kind of way what his body and mind uh, was experiencing with such depth and such continuity that it allowed him to come to understand what you might call discretionary human suffering. The kind of suffering that we have, which is largely uh, mental, psychological. It includes our resistance to, to physical suffering as well. He came to understand how discretionary human suffering was created in his own mind and how you could come to a different relationship with the experiences of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, and things happening at the mind door. So that that suffering could come to an end. And part of the reason he was able to see things in such profound depth and in such a panoramic as well as specific way was he had incredible concentration. So the early practices of the Buddha before he, he made the last push to enlightenment, before he went out on his own uh, without a teacher and just practiced and practiced, his initial trainings were in concentration methods. So he mastered concentration to a very high degree, but found that concentration alone was not sufficient to actually liberate his mind from suffering. So being an extremely honest being who was continually looking at his immediate experience after he had all these refined and deeply satisfying but temporary absorption experiences, asked himself the question, is there still suffering? And his answer was yes. And that let him know that concentration alone doesn't do it. But you see within the story that it was the development of concentration in depth that really gave his mind the penetrative capacity to make that observation. To see very deeply and to make that observation. And later he, he went on to the, the breakthrough one night under the, the Bodhi tree and his understanding arose that night and it was later formulated and described as the teachings of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So these, this particular set of teachings is real, are the core teachings of the Buddha. So every type of Buddhism that you can imagine has this at its uh, beginning point. There are many different schools, but they all include this. And every teaching that you get here at IMS, in one way or another, is either a direct teaching from the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, or uh, an extrapolation from these teachings, or uh, teachings associated with the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truth teachings. So it all ties back into that view, that comprehensive understanding of how suffering is created and how it can be let go. So the first Noble Truth is, there is suffering, or there is unsatisfactoriness. 
the word dukkha is the Pali word, and it isn't completely translatable uh, into any single English word. But it means there's something baked into reality that's an ouch. <laughs> and you can't get away with it. You got to get away from it. And you know, there's pointings to the truth of old age, sickness, and death. Separation from what you love, not getting what you don't want, mental torments, you name it. There is this. This is what the experience is of every uh, human being. And he said, so that can sound like a very depressive analysis. Like that's the first teaching. There's suffering. There's unsatisfactoriness. <laughs> but what you need to understand is this is like a description and not a prescription, right? It's not what you're signing up for when you, when you study the path of the Buddha. He just had the courage and the forthrightness to say, hey, there's a problem. And then he went on in the other teachings of the the other three noble truths and the Eightfold Path to diagnose what the problem was, what caused the problem, and how it can be remedied. So there's a problem statement initially, but then there's the action steps, if you want to put it in that kind of language. So the second noble truth is there is a cause of suffering, and it is ignorance born from craving. Ignorance born from craving. So the Buddha says, he said, no, he said it's craving born from ignorance. Craving born from ignorance. So the Buddha is actually saying there's a kind of way in which we misunderstand what's going on. Then this misunderstanding, this avijja, this uh, is not just we don't get it, it's that our view is actively wrong. Our view of what how reality is put together is actively wrong. So the craving comes from the ignorance, but the craving is the suffering. So the Buddhist method then in the third and fourth steps is basically to say there is a way to uproot this. And the Eightfold Path is the way that you do it. So he says there's eight particular steps that one can practice that leads to the mind coming to clarity about how reality is put together and coming into harmony with that truth so that suffering is, can be extinguished. That's a pretty big claim. Obviously, old age sickness and death don't go away. So what, what is he saying? So he's really addressing the way in which the mind resists and out of, is out of harmony with the truth of things and how that disconnection, that resistance, that misunderstanding actually causes us to go into a state of struggle where we're fighting with things in real time as they exist and simultaneously missing the opportunity to do something in real time 
that would actually move us in the direction of less suffering. So we're kind of thrashing about in relationship to immediate experience. We're not close enough to it, we're not clear enough about it, we're not balanced enough in relationship to it to actually see the opportunities to come into harmony, to uh, have a kind of Aikido relationship to things. So where wise concentration fits into this Eightfold Path is actually as the last step of the Eightfold Path. Wise concentration. Wise concentration. And ahead of it are seven other steps, including wise view, wise intention, wise action, wise effort, um, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. So you see, this is part, this meditation stuff is part of a bigger picture. Now we as Westerners, um, and most of us I think are Westerners, I know some of you were uh, born outside the U.S. and maybe from... um, other countries. But in the West, we kind of like to go for the goodies right away. Right? We don't want, you know, any of that extra stuff. We don't want to have to learn about anything. We want to just, like, get in there and do the mind polishing and fix what needs to be fixed. You know, we like to kind of, like, get in there under the hood and just, you know, tinker around and See if we can get it started. But there is a context for all of this. And in some ways, without understanding some fundamental things about the context, it's hard for you to really understand what's going on with the meditation and the meditation instructions themselves. So... Let's talk about Dharma practice itself and how this might tie back into your own analysis of how it went here and what it meant here and how you did here. So first, the untrained mind, and the Buddha often talks about the trained and the untrained mind, is likened in some um, of the Buddhist tradition to things like a wild ox that is tied to a cart. Or sometimes it's likened to a rampaging elephant. That's you. (laughs) That's you (laughs) before you figure out how how to work with your mind. So the idea is um, whatever our habitual or existing conditions or conditioning is, that's what the mind does. So that when you, and you see this, when you come into meditation training initially, you know, you sit down and you tell the mind, okay, I want you to, 
Attend to the breath. I want you to notice there. I want you to just find the Anapana spot and I want you to stay there and I want you to notice that. And so it does that, right? It does that and it just keeps doing that day and night, day and night. It just does that. But you really want it to, right? You really want it to do that. And you tell it again. Oh, sit down. And, right? So you see the, you see the uh, image of the wild ox and the cart. It's not, uh, there's no reins. <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no steering mechanism on that the mind responds to early in practice. So, for instance, in uh, Zen, there's this whole series of pictures called the Zen ox herding pictures that uh, uses these images and symbols within uh, ten different frames to explain the process of the mind being trained. And the Tibetans have uh, have uh, nine elephant training uh, pictures that have different things in there, like a monk that's initially chasing the elephant, trying to get it to pay attention, and, you know, a monkey that's, you know, running ahead of it, and a rabbit that's on top of it, and it all has symbolic value. But in both of these uh, sets of animal images, they both wind up with the monk or the practitioner riding upon either the the ox or the elephant, which is behaving very nicely, which is going along completely cooperative with the will and with the instruction of the rider. So the direction of practice is the direction of cultivating the mind towards this increasing pliancy where the body-mind system, or some teachers call it the various sub-minds, if you're looking at it on a neurological basis, get on board and actually work together, work, work in unity and cooperatively in the interest of wisdom and compassion and the end of the kind of suffering that an untrained mind causes to itself and to others. But if you can imagine what would be involved with training a wild oxen or a rampaging elephant, you can see why there may have been oh, one or two moments here where you were going, oh my God, what was I thinking? It's like, oh... I'm trying to do this, and I keep trying to do this, and it's just so hard, it's just so difficult. <clears throat> and then tif- typically with a mind that has not had so much uh, training, the way we go about this uh, and how we assess how things are going tends to be very tangled up in the me story. Right, the me story. Um, And, you know, we as untrained humans, this is our baseline interpretation of 
things. Things are happening to us. Things are happening to us. Then things happen to us and then we get mad at ourselves because they're happening to us and we're causing them. So why are we doing that? Anybody have those kinds of thoughts while you're here on retreat? Why am I doing this? This, why am I doing this? And sometimes people will come into interviews and they'll say, I, I, I was sitting there and I was, you know, trying to pay attention and then, you know, all of a sudden I, I you know, I got up and I left the hall and why did I do that? <laughs> and I'll say, I have no idea why. <laughs> why did you, why you did that? So there, in the center of that is some imagined master control that, you know, is on top of it all and is directing it all and making it all happen. And so then when it's not happening right, then we get really mad at ourselves. Why can't I focus? Why can't I focus? Why can't I focus? Well, because you're not, <laughs> you're not in control of that. But we read it as a uh, through a uh, me story lens, right? Uh, so then uh, it's there, with that kind of ownership of experience, we're kind of oscillating between uh, a stance of resistance to what's happening and insistence on something else happening, and this tends to vacillate back and forth between over. Con- control and collapse in terms of effort, right? I'm going to get in there and I'm going to get on top of it and I'm going to make it happen and I'm going to... Like ramp, amp, amp, ramp, 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 amp, 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 amp. <laughs> and then the other one, I'm so sick of this, I can't do this anyway, I'm really horrible, <laughs> yoga. it's like, oh, I don't know why I even bother, I just keep falling asleep and there's something, <laughs> something wrong with me and I... Uh, Sometimes in the same sitting, right? <laughs> you get the one and then you get the other and then you get the other one, right? So, and you know, so the, your overall inset, uh, assessment tends to be kind of sound like this, this thing, right? Like, you know, I did really bad and I failed. How'd you do in your retreat? I did really bad. <laughs> you know, I, I'm a bad yogi. I'm a bad yogi. Or, you know, if, if you've had a, had a good spell, I'm a good yogi, I'm a good yogi, you know, I did great, I did great. <laughs> Next time I have my sitting, it's going to be so great. <laughs> so, so as your dharma practice proceeds and you start to actually be able to hear instructions and implement them, some interesting things happen. So this is a a core competency in Dharma practice to actually be able to hear instructions and put them into practice. So we we recorded them for you. (laughs) So you can listen to them again and again later. But this is a really important point because 
I teach fairly often up at the forest refuge and uh, up at the forest refuge you have people come in some people come in and they'll stay for uh, a week or two and you know it's all all people who have like a certain minimum amount of experience and a lot of people have you know a good amount of experience there some people stay for months and months but it but in my first meeting with people up there I always ask them and I always say well what set of instructions are you using? And they look at me blankly. So I thought, wow, this is really interesting. This is really interesting. Because this is kind of, these are the process rules or the recipe, you know, just like you would follow a recipe to bake a cake if you didn't know how to do it. Take two eggs, crack them, <laughs> you know, Separate the, the, the yolk from the egg, from the white. Get your mixer. Whip until fluffy. <laughs> right? So focusing on learning the instructions until they're internalized. And you could say them back to me if I said, tell me what the instructions are for Anapanasati. And you could give me like the basic start points. That's important. That's important. So, so you hear and hopefully remember something of the instructions when you're on retreat and then you try to put the instructions into play, right? So you're sitting there in silence with your eyes mostly closed. You've got the instructions in mind and then you try to do the instructions. And then you see what happens. Something will happen next, right? Either the mind will settle on the breath, it'll be present with the breath, or something else will happen. And this is the role of mindfulness in this particular practice and in all practices, is the mind being present for that other thing that happens that's other than settling on the breath. So another core competency in meditating is learning what the five hindrances to concentration are and what the rules are for practicing with each of these. So there's sense desire or craving, that's the wanting for something pleasant. Ooh, I'd like, this is so boring, I'd like to think about my trip to Jamaica. (laughs) The breath goes, okay, there's aversion, which is the the not liking, you know, this sucks, I hate this, this is, like, why do they make us do this, you know, I should have Qigong here, if they had an espresso bar, we wouldn't be so sleepy, those are the two big, biggies, but then you've got sloth and torpor, Right, sleepy, sleepy, sinking mind, dull mind, you know, can't find the breath, keeps slipping off into it into some semi-conscious state, sloth and torpor. And then there's the, the other one, which is more energy than you can actually deploy, which is uh, restlessness, often accompanied by worry. And then my favorite, doubt. 
which is the hardest to identify and the sneakiest in many ways. So a great thing if you're interested in uh, furthering your meditation at some point would actually be to undertake a study of what the five hindrances are and what they look like when they come up into practice and what ways there are to actually disable them when they happen. Because that's what is keeping you from following uh, the primary meditation instruction. It's always one of those five things or some blend of them. So knowing what they are and knowing how to uh, either set them aside or if they're insistent and they're predominant, how to work with them directly until they subside is really important. So this takes patience and resolve to learn how to do, which is where you really need to be drawing on your paramis, your qualities of heart. And in order to be willing to make that kind of effort, if you remember my talk on the five spiritual faculties, there has to be some kind of faith. There has to be some kind of faith, some kind of interest, some type of confidence, some kind of commitment there to generate the, the interest and the energy to undertake it. So for the Buddha, he was highly incentivized by his seeing very deeply into the intrinsic uh, nature of suffering that's woven through the universal conditioned experience. So he had a very strong bodhi uh, citta, very strong desire to awaken himself so that he could be a guide to other people. But for each of you, this is an area where reflection could be very empowering so that you could find the deepest possible motivation that will will carry you and energize you in the process of learning some new moves. Now, as you practice the Dharma, now you've got the instructions, you can remember what they are, you're committed to... uh, you know, working with them, you learn some things about the hindrances, you start to learn how to practice with the hindrances. It's very interesting how the mind's understanding of how things are going changes. So I said initially, you know, when we've got the wild ox and the, the rampaging elephant, it's all about me, 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 but there's nobody that can hold the reins. It's out of control. It's kind of a chaotic (laughs) mess going on there, but nevertheless, we take emotional ownership of uh, immediate experience, although we cannot control it. But as we do Dharma practice, the energy starts to go instead to clear perception, to a kind of harmonious and mindful relationship with what's actually present. So in, instead of trying to 
do Katie bar, bar the door in regard to a rising experience, the energy of the body-mind is more settled and more present, and the energy instead goes into knowing what is happening from moment to moment and attending wisely or attending harmoniously to it. And this, the energy goes out of the story of me. It's no longer, things start to not be uh, run through that filter as much as they were initially. So the Buddha, when he's talking in the, the Satipatthana Sutta, where he gives the basic instructions for mindfulness meditation, has some really interesting things when he gets to a description of working directly with what are called mental events or arisings at the mind or meaning thoughts, feelings, emotions, that that kind of thing. He says, Oh, oh Bhikkhu, one knows a mind with anger as a mind with anger and one knows a mind without anger as a mind without anger. Very matter-of-fact, right? Yeah, it's angry. Yeah, it's not angry. It's not, oh, I'm so angry. Oh, he's so angry. So bad to be angry. Or it's so good to be angry because they deserve it. It's just, just the report, right? Very neutral recognition of what's present regardless of what it is, not a big judgment about the state. So, if one who uh, has been practicing a good period of time and has learned the instructions and has learned how to work with hindrances and has learned how to hold experience with mindfulness, was asked about how the retreat went, they would be more likely to say something like, my main hindrance was sleepiness. It arose often. (laughs) Okay. I realized I was too tight and needed relaxation. Or... Unlike past retreats, I could find the Anapana spot, but I couldn't always notice the pauses. It's a whole different way of putting it, right? It's just sort of matter of fact. It's objective in a certain kind of way. So... as you go on with meditation practice, you start to be uh, led in the direction of greater clarity about what the variables are. What the variables are. Hmm, what does that mean? Well, how much control we have and how much we don't, which is a fundamental 
confusion for us humans. Big confusion about the span of control. Now the Buddha would say, ultimately, we have ultimate control in terms of the shape or the arc of our own development. The arc of the development of our own heart and mind. We can choose to develop our heart and mind in the direction of increased wisdom and increased compassion. So we control that. We can control the the direction of development or the vector of development, if you want to put it that way. What we generally can't control in any given moment is what immediately arises. Why? Because it's conditioned and many of the conditions are either backloaded, i.e. are rooted in the past, or they are present in the immediate, but we don't control them. Right? So have you noticed, if you, you said to yourself, I'm not going to get sleepy, I'm not going to get sleepy, this time I'm not going to get sleepy, this, right? I mean, you really intend it, you're really like completely on board, you've got the resolve piece going. But you just don't have the control to control that. So what can you contribute to that situation then when you can't control the manifestation? So the answer is, if there is mindfulness present, you can control the mind's, or contribute to the mind's relationship to that arising experience. You can contribute skillfulness to that and not fatigue yourself through futile resistance nor take ownership of what's arising in the immediate sense but be in a position where you can be responsible and wise in relationship to it which is really the power point Because we don't control the flow of events. But nevertheless, if you use an image or an analogy, you know, if you're a a whitewater kayaker, if you develop skill, it's a whole different ride than when you're, you got no paddle and you're going down the river sideways. Right? So this overall adventure is a kind of coming to understand what the currents are, what the principles of kayaking is, figuring out how to handle a paddle, and just trying, and learning from what happens when you do try. So there are many variables and you of course came into retreat with all different kinds of sets of of circumstances. So a first thing that happened when you got here is you came into this place of seclusion in the middle of nowhere. 
I can remember when I first drove into to Barrie. I lived in Seattle for a long time. When I first drove into Barrie, um, it was kind of dark, and we came up from where or something, and at, that as you get into the area with the town common, there's this sign that said, thickly settled. <laughs> and I just laughed, just like, whoa, okay. I think we're still waiting for a stoplight in town, but we do have a Dunkin' Donuts now. But, okay, so you're here in this very secluded place. Then you go through a period of withdrawal. I mean, there is a withdrawal thing that happens at the beginning of retreats, especially when we took your phones away. So you don't have the devices. You know, the, the comforts of home aren't available to you. Your routines. You know, we all like our routines, right? So friends, family, colleagues. Well, that could be a good thing, but they're not around. The pets aren't around. You know, your places, your, your coffee shop's not there. Your stuff isn't here. You know, it's a big jump up to come to this kind of place. So there's a kind of detox that goes on. There's much less sensory bombardment here because whole categories of experience are kind of left behind when you come. So there's much less external stimulation. So of course that tips the mind towards sloth and torpor very often. Especially if you're used to (laughs) drinking coffee. And you didn't bring any. Okay. <laughs> and then, of course, we come in with our own particular, well, shall we call them issues, issues, circumstances. You know, issues of health, uh, emotional issues, losses of different types, life issues. They come into retreat with you as well. You may have noticed that. <laughs> they come with the mind door. And then sometimes if they're body things, well, of course, the body would be here, wouldn't it? So here they are. Here they are. But that's not necessarily a bad thing because the, the Buddha, when he was talking about suffering, said that suffering... W- is actually a powerful motivator. He says, suffering ripens either into search or into despair. One of those two things. So I would say as a generic comment that people usually don't wind up at places like this because they're too happy. Right. So very often, at least the initial entry is become, because you're really hoping something will work. So there's dukkha, right? There's dukkha. So then you get here, and you try to do the instructions. You know, there's really been a big range of people in this particular retreat, all the way from people who have, you know, 
never done any kind of meditation at all, whatsoever, to some people who have been practicing uh, for years and might even do some teaching themselves. So this is a very mixed experience group. But then we put you in groups of 12 that were just big enough so that you had had to hear about other people's experience, which of course is kind of a trip. So there you are. So then that opens up evaluation, doesn't it? Because we're always comparing ourselves to other people anyway. I mean, we just kind of do. I was watching this uh, uh, thing on NOVA at, at uh, was a really interesting study of various animal species. It was called, the show called, something like uh, Spy in the Wild, where they made up these fake animals that had like a camera in one of their eyes, but they were like remarkably lifelike. They did an incredible job. They um, made them look exactly like the animals they wanted to study. And they even like somehow made them smell the same and they could make the same calls and sounds and they could even move and, you know, do orangutan, you know, facial expressions and things. And so they did uh, hippos and they did elephants and they did orangutans and, um, oh, what's the name? Monkeys? Yeah, the primates too. But in each one of these, these cultures, you know, there's like a hierarchy. There's like a comparing thing that goes on, you know, there's the you know, the dominance and the subdominance and the struggle for status and the struggle for power and trying to find a place in the group and figuring out where your place is and all the rest of that. Well, you know, we do it. <laughs> we do it too. The Buddha says, well, you know, you should really re- rethink that whole process of comparing yourself to others also. He says, you know, this constant thing that we do about, well, I'm better than, I'm worse than, I'm the same as others. He says that's dukkha, that's suffering. But we tend to, tend to do it probably instinctually. And actually, if you, if you look at the progress of awakening or the progress um, by which people classically become enlightened, it's like one of the la- very last things to go. So, you know, we do tend to, to compare and evaluate ourselves against others. But in this particular case, it's really unwise because the variables that each of you had in being here are so completely different. So in evaluating your practice and about how you did compare to the other yogis, you need to know that good practice can look a lot of different ways. So I'll just give you some practical 
examples here. So if your mind wanders and you're aware of it and you bring it back matter-of-factly, that's good practice. We gave you that instruction. If that's the way it went, that, that's good practice. So now you may... And if your mind doesn't wander, that's good practice. So does that mean if your mind wanders, it's bad practice? So what if when your mind wanders and when you become aware of it, you get frustrated, but you're aware you're frustrated, and you let that frustration clear, and then you come back. Is that good practice? Yes. How about if you realize you're sleepy, and you've got sinking mind, and you try to rouse energy? Is that good practice whether you succeed or not? Yes. It is. So how about if you realize that you're actually exhausted and that your mind is really tight from striving and you decide to take a strategic nap? (laughs) Is that good practice? So if you do long sits when the body has focused and energy, that's good practice, right? If you can find the anapana spot and easily keep awareness there, that's good practice, right? How about if you can't find the breath there and feel frustrated but redirect awareness to the breath somewhere where it can be perceived? Is that good practice? Okay. So I could go on and on with these examples, but you'll see that the primary pointing is that it's not what is happening as you make Uh, effort. It's whether the mind continues to remain engaged with some integrity with the process. Because that's wise effort. And that's the only thing that we can do because we can't control the immediate arising because we don't control the variables. So then the question is, can we kind of hang in there and not take these challenges as evidence that there's something wrong with us that these things are happening to begin with. So good practice can really look very different from person to person. So, you know, the that's important to know. It's 
given your developed skill level, what you can do really varies. This whole process is a skill development process that simultaneously calls on all of your resources of heart and mind. So, you know, we go back to the image of the wild ox and the rampaging elephant. I mean, that's what is there to work with at the beginning. And as you go along and you get a little more skill, you figure out, just like you do with training an animal, how to enlist a little bit more cooperation on the part of the the formerly totally wild conditioned being. So you're learning how to do that with your own hearts and mind. So the arc of Dharma development then is moving um, the uh, understanding of what's happening as this uh, process unfolds away from a real egoic self-view being at the center of it all where everything that arises or everything that's experienced somehow gets turned into a reflection on us either pro or con to a much more uh, allowing neutral objective recognition of what's happening in real time and then the practice the practical consideration of okay this is objectively happening in real time how can i come into wise relationship with this how can i come into harmony with this how can i apply the meditation instructions to this so it this shift happens gradually we, you know, relapse again and again back into the self-view or the identity view and the, and the proce- process of learning how to do this. And how do you know that is happening? That you've la- lapsed back into the self-view and the identity view? Well, you suffer. You suffer. That's a big clue right there. So two thoughts in particular tend to arise when uh, the mind is, has uh, defaulted back to the um, egoic perspective on what's happening in the immediate. One is, I should be able to, dot, dot, dot. And the other one is, this shouldn't be happening. which are both uh, thoughts that reflect span of control confusions. I should be able to not be sleepy. I should be able to be at the Anapana spot and stay there and not wander. I should be able to, I should be able to, I should be able to. So that would be a form of deluded judgment. Mm 
So I should be able to is a little bit different than, hmm, what's that instruction again? (laughs) This is what's happening. What's that instruction again? What is this thing that's happening? Oh, it's a feeling like this shouldn't be happening. Oh, that's aversion. Oh, that's a hindrance. What do I do when there's a hindrance? Right, so we circle right back around to the, oh, it's good to know the instructions. So, you know, to be able to hold the instructions in mind and actually see that they apply to this particular situation that's there, that's, the de- that's a real developmental task. And it, it takes time. Because, you know, if you're going to put it in a certain kind of brain way, you'd say, well, you know, the, the prefrontal cortex override, you know, has bad wiring, it kind of flickers on and off, you know. It's not a, it's not steady state, but it gets much steadier. So, I just wanted to put that out there to help you realize that whatever the experience that you've had here, it's perfectly all right. Right, that there, there isn't any kind of platonic ideal uh, or uh, imaginary standard that. Uh, I overlay or should be overlaid upon your experience because the causes and conditions in every moment for each one of you are different. What you're going to experience each moment is going to be unique to you. The available skill set that you have is going to be unique to you. So you just need to pick it up and work where you are with the tools that you have at hand. And just like our um, whitewater kayaker, you know, you get better. You get better. You get dumped in the water. Okay, you get dumped in the water a few times. You drift downstream without your kayak, you know. <laughs> you drink some, drink some water through your nose. You know, it's unpleasant at times. It can be. But it's very doable, doable for human beings to learn how to do this. So if you can consider your motivation, you consider the potential um, that you have for evolving in the direction of more wisdom and compassion, how that would shift things in your own life and... um, change the ways in which you could be a benefit uh, for others and be an actor in this world that so needs people, so needs people who know how to work with their own heart and mind and, and keep their seat in working with others. It's really important. So I think it's fantastic whatever happened for you here. It was just the way it had to be. So let's just sit for a moment.
May this Dharma that we've practiced here together take root in our hearts and minds. And may we enjoy the circumstances and the causes and conditions which may lead to its further unfolding for the benefit of beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.